Asama dudes, it is Monday, and you know what that means. This is another episode of Big Stick Energy, the undomesticated outdoor podcast brought to you on the Out of Collective platform. My name is Tori. You can find me at Tori A. Alina on Instagram, and I'm here with my co-host, Renee McCurdy. You can find her at Renee McCurds on Instagram. Uh, we are two of the five co-founders of the Womb Tang brand. You can find us at womb.tang on Instagram, and you can also filter through all of Renee's memes at wombcork on Instagram. Those are a beaut, and we're starting to trend into bike season, which is what we want to talk about today. Um, it has been a weird-ass snow year. I think we can all agree on that. Across North America, it has been shallow as fuck. We have been having weird kind of patterns of deep freeze and then super duper warm. Like I'm in Fernie, BC right now, and it is supposed to get up to 13 degrees. It was like 20 degrees in Calgary the other day. And honestly, all that has me thinking about is summer sports and with the daylight saving change, the days are so much longer. I honestly cannot wait to get my Norco site A2 out of my garage, take her to the spa, get her cleaned up and out there, which is what we are here to talk about today. Um, on the episode today, we have Alex Pavan. She is an absolute weapon. She is a professional mountain biker. Uh, she is the social media manager for Juliana. She's also a registered nurse. And she is a skier. She's sponsored by Atomic, doing heaps of cool stuff. And she has some really unique perspectives on what's happening in the bike industry for chicks. And we dive into that today. Like Juliana, one of the key topics we talk about today is how Juliana is creating an authentic, safe space for female participants that like actually speaks to them and isn't just like this kind of woke wash performative top layer of marketing campaigns that a lot of brands struggle with. They don't actually know how to authentically engage with different groups that, you know, aren't kind of part of that majority demographic. Um, so that's dope. We also talk about some of her favorite places to bike in the States, um, some of her journey uh, becoming a professional mountain biker and a lot of other really sick stuff. We have some ideas to do a couple series about like how to find the right bike because personally for myself, I'm such a mountain biking novice. I pretend I know what I'm talking about, but realistically, I have no idea what's going on. And I think having someone like uh, Alex Pavon or like Alex Showerman and doing like a bit of a live Q&A with a bunch of people would maybe help us feel a little bit more confident getting into finding the right bike, doing the sport. And yeah, it was a really sick episode and I'm super pumped to do more like these as we push into the summer. Um, if you guys have any ideas for how we could construct a Q&A like that, or if there's other sports you wanted to do that on, where we could create those panels so that all of us can learn more about gear because girls and gear is one of our favorite topics, hit us in the DMs and let us know what you think. Um, other than that, if you feel inclined, as I mentioned, every episode, we'd love to hear your feedback because we really want to make this show the best that we possibly can. And if you hate it, that's okay too. Uh, but whatever streaming service you're listening to, if you feel so inclined to leave us a review, we would love it. We love reading the feedback um, and it helps us just kind of keep doing what we do. Speaking of that, we're going to run into a quick ad here because we would not be able to keep delivering without our sponsors. We are stoked. So Renee is going to dip into that before we get into the episode. This episode is brought to you by Darn Tough Socks based in Vermont, USA. They're a family owned merino wool mill that's dedicated to quality over quantity. These socks aren't itchy. 
They're not hot. They're soft. They are silky. They are magic. We love a good ski boot to help us ski to our full potential. But if you go cheap on the socks inside them, it really just ruins the whole vibe you got going. Nothing ruins a good ski day like having sad feet. But the rad thing about Darn Tough is that you only have to buy them one time. They don't call them Darn Tough for nothing. These socks are guaranteed for life. So moisture wicking, warm feet, you're going to have a good day if you got these Darn Tough socks. They also make socks for different flavors of activities. When you think of merino socks, you sometimes think of skiing, but that's not their only application. You got to keep that moisture wicking going in your hiking boots, your trail runners, your biking shoes. They got socks for all of your sports. So we're heading into multi-sport season. Get your bike sock, get your hiking sock, get your ski sock, because you want to keep those footies dry. Head to www.darntough.com and you will find your forever sock guaranteed for life. You really can't beat that. Obviously, you are a great human being, but would you <laughs> mind introducing yourself to everybody? Like who you are, what you do. You told us yeah. some like, yeah, you just, you dope. So tell everybody yeah. who you are. <laughs> um, my name is Alex Pavon. I, um, I am a professional mountain biker for Juliana Bicycles. Um, I'm also the social media manager for Juliana Bicycles. Um, I'm a, my real job is as a full, I work as a trauma ICU nurse. Um, and then I also am uh, an ambassador for Atomic and Evo. So kind of a, kind of like to have my fingers in all sorts of, all sorts of things. Um, yeah. I just, I like to ski. I like to mountain bike, <laughs> be outside. I don't really like to work, but we have to do it so that we can go outside <laughs> and play. But yeah, that's me. That's sick. I feel like you have your toe into a couple of really different and crucial aspects of the industry. Like you have it on like the play side, so the consumer side, but then you're also witnessing it on the business side, which right. I think is something that we wanted to dive into today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even know where to start. Like, <laughs> we started off real strong. Already. We did. Yes. We <laughs> hit that in the gut for sure. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. I want to know, I guess like, let's just start, like you started off ski racing, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's start there. <laughs> okay. The story of Alex. <laughs> um, yeah. I grew up ski racing. I'm, um, for those people that don't know, I'm from Flagstaff, um, which is a tiny little wonderful mountain town in Northern Arizona, um, which most people probably don't think of skiing, uh, rightfully so, because the rest of the state's a desert. But um, I grew up ski racing. My parents grew up skiing. And um, yeah, I did that until I was 19. Um, I lived on and off in the winters in Aspen after I like my freshman year of high school, um, because I was kind of the only, uh, kid left on my ski club that was like trying to compete at an elite level in ski racing. And I had family, um, up in the Roaring Fork Valley. So, um, I moved up there to be a ski racer and I would like live half the year in Aspen, um, <laughs> with my, uh, family friends who lived up there and my aunt and uncle. And then I'd come back 
to Flagstaff for the summers. And um, yeah, I did that until I was 19. I had a really big knee injury when I was uh, 15 um, that set me back. So I, I took a year off to rehab a knee injury, um, went back to ski racing, graduated from high school early so that I could move back to Colorado and like try and get my points low enough to be a collegiate ski racer. That's like what I wanted to do. Like I was like, I'm going to ski race for Boulder or Denver. Like that is the end all be all. Um, and then that definitely didn't happen. I came back from a knee injury and had a good couple of years ski racing, but just never like, uh, was never able to like make that collegiate ski racing thing happen. And that's how I ended up, uh, riding mountain bikes instead. Did you ride mountain bikes in the summer or did you start riding after skiing didn't work out? Um, I feel, well, I rode bikes every, I feel like every child hopefully gets to ride bikes. Um, we would go like in the summers, we would go to like camps at Mount Hood for like weeks and weeks. Um, and we would always like ride mountain bikes for dryland training, but it was like very short bike rides. You know, we were, you know ski racers you're like heavy and squat a lot of weight and you don't really like go on 40 mile bike rides <laughs> because your legs weigh uh 100 pounds each it's hard there, to get up there. <laughs> um so it wasn't really until after i quit ski racing i was like was like looking for another sport to like consume consume all of my free time and that's how i kind of got into mountain biking and that's where it really started. But yeah, I always, I always rode mountain bikes. Was there a specific moment or like starting to race? Like, how did you get into that side of things? Um, I, after I quit ski racing, I was like convinced that I didn't want to do any competitive sports anymore. I was like over it. I was like, I spend all my time like in a gym and like racing and I played volleyball and like all through high school. And I was like, I'm done like competing and doing all of this stuff. And then I was out on a mountain bike ride with um, one of the boys that worked at my local shop. And he was like, you're really fast. Like you should, you should really like try going to like one of these enduro races. And that was like 2013. That was like the year enduro got like really big and popular in like 2012, 2013 in the States. It was already a thing in, in Europe. Um, and in the States we had super D. Um, but Enduro got really big, like right around when I started to ride bikes and he's like, you should really try going to this like big mountain Enduro. And, um, yeah, he convinced me to go to this race in Crested Butte. I crashed like so many times I taco to wheel. Um, <laughs> I, I think I got like second or third at that race. And I was like, Oh, this is pretty fun. And I was like racing amateur. And then, um, I just kept racing. And the next year I started racing pro and um, ended up being kind of fast. I feel like I was faster then than I am now, but <laughs> maybe it's because I had no fear, but, um, so yeah, that's kind of how I started, started into racing. Someone, someone just convinced me to try it. And I was like, I don't want to. And then I did. And I was like, oh shit, this is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how I started competing in big mountain comps on the ski side though. Yeah. It's, Someone was like, hey, there's not a lot of girls doing this. You should, you should just you should do, it. do it. Yeah. And then that's what I did for like five years. I was hooked. And yeah, it made me a better rider. Yeah. Having those comps. And yeah. 
I mean, I don't necessarily have that on the biking side because I love to ride, but I have like stuck to my, I don't want to make biking competitive for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's just fine. It's nice to have an outlet that um, is not competitive. I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but I like, I'm not like super competitive with other people per se. Like I, you know, understand that there's always going to be people that are like way better than me and that's, that's fine, but I am super competitive with myself. And so it's like the moment I like start to get into my head about like, you should be doing this better. You should be like, you know, riding faster. You shouldn't be afraid to hit that jump or that drop or, you know, whatever. Then all of a sudden it's not very fun. So it's nice to have an outlet that is not competitive. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I still love progression. Like last yeah. summer, last summer, my thing was bike park. So <laughs> I bought a DH bike to ride at Whistler and I just rode Whistler bike park, like maybe 10 days last year, not a ton, but I wanted to get better at drops and I wanted to get better at jumps. That's the so, place to do it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> just go, just go follow Jamie Hill around. You know, Jamie? No, I don't know. Oh hardly. And I like really like don't know that many people out here yet because I moved here during COVID. So yeah. I actually like hardly have any girls that I know to ride DH with, to be oh, honest. Man. Well, yeah. I will, I will, I will hook you up with some fucking rad women up there. I'm pretty average at mountain biking, but actually like it's interesting because I, it doesn't matter how good I get, I still consider myself like intermediate or average at mountain biking. But I know that I've been getting better every single yeah. year and I can tell when I get on my bike, like even this year, like one of my first rides, I hit a jump right off the bat and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know if I would have done this last year. Right. So I know right. I'm getting better, but in my mind, I'm always just like intermediate, <laughs> average. Like I, I never have like, yeah. had the confidence to be like, no, I'm like an advanced mountain biker now. And like, I ride mostly like well, you trails. And, and you live like, in a no. place where there's just a bunch of freak athletes, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, and if, when I go to Whistler, I'm like, I am an intermediate mountain biker. <laughs> like I'm yeah. a paid professional mountain biker, but I go to Whistler and I'm like, you garbage <laughs> like you just and then I like you know I go ride with my girlfriends that live up there and I'm like if I rode all of the stuff that you guys ride all the time that would I understand now I get it I get it but yeah you yeah. just live in a place that's full of people that are really really good at riding bikes and, and Whistler bike park is honestly like the easiest trails in the whole valley in a lot oh, of ways yeah. the stuff that's by my house like when I pile up from my house there's honestly like nothing easy there's a one blue trail and the rest is all like fairly tech yeah the rest of the valley trails are i actually whenever i go up there i i don't i try not to ride in the bike park that much i'm not a huge bike park person but oh man i love where you guys live i love whistler yeah <laughs> uh so you raced enduros and then mm -hmm. somewhere along the line, you end up with Juliana. Yes. Um, Juliana, so Santa Cruz had a bike called the Juliana Furtado uh, before they launched Juliana as its own separate brand. And it was named after Juliana Furtado, who is this just like absolutely incredible woman who just like dominated the World Cup 
circuit. Um, she actually was a ski racer. Uh, I think she's from the East coast, I believe. Um, so she grew up, she grew up ski racing and had like a number of really terrible, uh, knee injuries that led her into away from her ski racing career, like Olympic bound, like ski racing career into, um, world cup mountain biking. And those were the days where like you raced cross country and downhill and you raced it on the same bike. Um, and Juliana Furtado like won in the same year on the same bike. She won world championships in downhill and cross country. Um, so Santa Cruz had a bike named after her, the Juliana Furtado. And then in 2013, I believe Juliana became its own brand um, under Santa Cruz. And we launched like a whole line of um, bikes. And so in 2014, Juliana became the first brand to launch an all women's enduro team, like an enduro world series team. And it was um, Kelly Emmett, Anka Martin and Sarah Leishman. Um, and that was the year they like put out a call to all of their like shop like all of their dealers um, to like have women apply as ambassadors for Juliana so that they could like grow their base. And um, I became like an ambassador through my shop in 2014. Um, and then like that winter I ended up meeting, I already knew Kelly Emmett from like racing, but I ended up like meeting her and getting to know her personally. And, She's like, oh, you should like really like be more involved with the brand. And I somehow managed to finagle my way like basically onto a factory team um, the next over the next couple of years. Um, Sarah Kelly and Anka kind of retired from professional racing. And um, we they Kelly ended up becoming the sports marketing manager of the team and brought in all of us like young little ducklings to like develop a, a new race team for Juliana. So. That's how I ended up um, racing for Juliana. And then, um, and I've been with them since. And then in 2017 or 2018, um, Sarah Leishman, who was also part of the original um, all women's team had been their social media manager. Um, and she was very busy working full-time as like a marketing manager for Arcteryx. Um, so she ended up stepping away and was like, you should, you should do this job. And I ended up taking over the social media manager job. And I don't know, it's just been, it's been super fun to like get to dabble in both worlds, like know the, know the ins and outs of the business side of it and also get to be an athlete. So. So are you racing EWS at this point or? Um, yeah, I have been racing EWS, um, the last like several years. I, the last two years, I have not been to a single EWS race. Um, thank you, COVID. Um, we canceled the EWS races in the States the last two years. And then obviously Crankworks hasn't happened the last two years. So, um, I only always raced just the North American EWS races. I never went over to Europe to race. Um, I mostly stuck to like national and Canadian events. Um, but this year will be the first year that I am actually not going to race any EWS races. Um, 
by choice because they scare me. <laughs> um, I feel like I just, I, I really enjoy uh, the more like adventure backcountry oriented enduro racing, like um, Trans BC, Trans Cascadia, Trans Sierra Norte. Um, so I am focusing more on those like big, like kind of remote backcountry stage races than on EWS racing. That's sweet. Do you have any that you have planned and booked already or? Yeah, um, I will be, so this year will be actually kind of weird. I was, I'm hoping that it will work out that I'll be able to go get up to trans BC. Um, that's like, uh, interior British Columbia, usually like, um, Roslyn, Castlegar, Nelson area, mm -hmm. um, which is my favorite places ever, um, to ride my bike. Um, and that's at the end of June. And then I'm actually going to, I'm going to really branch out and I'm going to go race Breck Epic, which is actually a multi-day staged cross country race, um, instead of an enduro, just because I feel like, uh, it sounds really hard and I like a, I like a good challenge. So I'm going to go bury myself, uh, probably at the top of a mountain in Breckenridge. If you guys never hear from me again, probably be dead up there, but I'm going to go give that a shot. And then, um, Trans Sierra Norte is over Dia de los Muertos. It's at the end of October into the beginning of November. And that's down in Oaxaca, um, Mexico. So hoping to that get to so cool. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's the writing there is incredible. And I feel like, you know, it's like really blowing up now, but you know, three, four years ago, it was like, I, the first time I went there, I was like mountain biking, like in Oaxaca, like, and I got there and I was like, oh shit, this place is amazing. There's like huge mountains and it's, it's incredible. It's the coolest place. So is there yeah. a big mountain biking scene there? There is starting to get to be one for sure. Mountain biking, I feel like has been big in Mexico for a while, or at least like this like kind of like urban downhill mountain biking scene has always been pretty big in Mexico and then like um, Central America and South America. Um, and it's just like gotten a lot bigger. There's like a pretty sweet enduro series, like Mexican enduro series. Um, I was actually supposed to go to one in Mexico City, but um, I can't, I can't go unfortunately. Um, but yeah, there's like, it's, it's big and it's growing and people like are starting to realize how awesome it is. And I am like really hoping that, uh, the like Mexican mountain bike culture does not become this like shitty whitewashed mountain bike culture as more and more people like start to discover how awesome it is down there. Cause I think that's like the beauty and magic of it is that it's not, you know, like riding in the States or Canada. Um, but yeah, it's incredible. And if you ever get the opportunity to go down there and ride bikes, it's unreal. It's so, it's so good. Can we define shitty whitewash? Mountain bike culture? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like the, it's like the it, bro culture. It. It's like this, like, whoops. Yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like that, you know, like your typical like like day at like just picture yourself standing in line at the bottom of the gondola and Whistler and like 
everything and everyone around you and like you're like oh like you know that like cringy like this is so like broy and like all anybody cares about is like the bike that they're riding does it have the nicest coolest most expensive shit on it like how does your kit look like do you look good do you match do you not like are you like making fun of the person that's never ridden their never like ridden a mountain bike ever and you're like standing there snickering and like saying mean things about how dorky they look like that is like shitty whitewashed <laughs> mountain bike culture and like you roll down to Mexico and you like hang out and like people are riding bikes that you know like 26 inch wheels with caliper brakes and like the bikes are like old from the 90s and people just like fucking love it they don't care what they look like the kids are pumped like they're just out there building trails because they love it and they like they don't care about like the rest of mountain bike culture and like what they're supposed to look like and the shit their bike is supposed to have on it and yeah I think that's that's the difference that's so pure yeah also when I stand in line at the Whistler (laughs) face of Whistler I don't know what this says about me, but I like look through the line and I just like feel like mostly I'm like, I can see it like almost all of my ex-boyfriends in this lineup. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh God, I have a type. <laughs> You're like, oh no, it's okay. I have a but type. Like, I have a type too. And they probably all stand in the line at Whistler too. Yeah. Shitty whitewashed bro sound dudes never last too long, but yeah yeah but aesthetically I like see the nice bikes and I'm like ooh. <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> so I, maybe maybe I'm also the worst I don't know I mean I will like be the first to admit that like the first thing I care about is like how do I look like do I look <laughs> do I look put together do I look like I know what I'm doing and like I've always joked that it's like if you can't be fast look fast which is like you know yeah. we make fun of people that like do that you're like oh there's your like typical, you know, pink bike bro who like isn't very good at riding a mountain bike, but because they read some article about how good access is and how they need a Zeb and, you know, what the fuck ever, this is like, this is what they look like. And I kind of make fun of that by saying it myself and being like, well, if I can't be fast, I better look fast. Uh, So I will be the first to admit that like, I, I certainly like stand in line. I would stand in line and be like, do I look like I know what I'm doing? Like, do I look put together? <laughs> like, how's my bike look? <laughs> but uh, some of that generally is annoys me. Like, it's like trying to keep up with the standard too, though, because you don't right. want to stick yes. out because you know that's what everyone else is thinking. Right. Um, like my family always joked growing up, like my parents were both runners, and it, we would say it's not how you run, it's how you look while you run. Yeah. But it's like the same. It's the same idea, right? Is yeah well, at least if I'm not good, I can look like I fit in. Right. Which means you have to have all the stuff. And like, right. I don't know. What which is like is so obnoxious. It's like just a way that we make mountain biking even more like inaccessible to people as being like, well, to fit in in this world, like you're going to need like, sorry about your, you know, $1,500 bike that works exceptionally well. Um, you're going to need a $10,000 bike with an electronic dropper post and electronic shifters and carbon wheels and like all of this bullshit that is just like that we that we deem necessary that's like totally not necessarily but when you don't have it you feel like you don't belong and i think that's shitty 
Yeah. I would like to say that I, I'm so like novice to the mountain biking world. Like I did learn how to mountain bike in Fernie for one year. And then I moved to New Zealand and I ended up doing 10 back-to-back winters for five years. So I was not on a mountain bike at all through that period. And then moving back to Calgary, I, I got into a relationship with somebody who is like ex-ski racer, hardcore mountain biker, all of his friends are. So jumping into that world, it was like, oh no, like if you don't have a dropper post, you won't be able to ride with my friends. And it's right. like, you're going to need a bike of at least this caliber. So like my bike costs more than my fucking car right, right. now, which I think is a standard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, like what gear do I have around the house to ride? It's like, oh, I have like Lululemon shorts or I have like right. this bike helmet that's not that cool. Or like I have like a hiking jersey. And then it's like you, you start to like realize that if you look the part, it's almost like camouflage a little right. bit. Uh-huh. You can pretend you know what you're doing until they see you on the trail and you're getting into a domestic fight with your bike named Penelope every time you do <laughs> yeah. shit. Because <But, laughs> that's me in a nutshell. But yeah. it's like, I, I don't have a lot of experience with bike culture, but there's so much overlap to ski culture as well. It's, and I think it's there's just, so much. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I love how you attributed those concepts of like looking the part, being the part, like um, the right ability, all that kind of stuff to bro culture, because I think it is the like reason we think that way and yeah. we feel that way. Somebody had to teach us that we had to do those things to belong, right? Right. right. And and like, I, I won't even like pretend that I don't contribute to it because like, I, I obviously certainly do. Like I show up with a really super awesome, expensive bike with a whole bunch of like super nice, expensive gear. And like, you know, that's, you see anybody you see that like looks at part is contributing to like your idea that that is also what you are supposed to look like. Um, so like, you know, women are not excluded from that, from that bro culture. I think that, um, I actually think that like some, I think that women have contributed more than we probably know to like the bro culture of mountain biking, because when women, uh, really decided that they wanted to be part of this like bound bike culture was like that was the way that you fit in is like you're one of the boys you know and like I love I love the boys that I ride with like they're some of my best friends but it's like you're one of the boys like I felt like I've always been treated as like one of the dudes and I'm like I am a woman yeah like this is just like this is the way that like women have assimilated into mountain bike culture until recently when we've decided that like we can have our own identity within the mountain bike culture so and these are really they're all barriers to entry too sorry Tartan are talking over each other this is our friendship in a nutshell (laughs) 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 they're all barriers to entry though too because i i read the study and it was in 2019 in the states so like pretty recently And they surveyed a bunch of women who were either like not mountain bikers or beginner, like very, very new to mountain biking. Mm -hmm. And they got all these descriptors of what are your perceptions of learning to mountain bike. And the top responses were mountain biking is a male dominated sport. The gear is too expensive. Mm -hmm. When I think of mountain biking, I picture men and people who ride mountain bikes are super athletic. Yeah. So when you look at those statements, it's, well, it's a male dominated sport. So that influences the culture to a certain point. 
the gear is too expensive. So if you want to look cool, it's going to cost you a buttload of money. Oh, uh, like a absolute buttload of money. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and you also have to look a certain way as an athlete for right. people to take you seriously because right. it's like a certain physique that you're expected to have. Mm -hmm. And that's something that also is being challenged in media lately as well. Mm -hmm. But like that, that like really just like culminates everything that we already like kind of know. Yeah. But this, it's just nice having to like a study that says, yeah, like this is actually how like outsiders feel. Yeah. No, it's not just that we're like making this up. This is, mm -hmm. this is the way that people feel. Yeah. And it's like, it's really um, disheartening. It's like, it's super unfortunate. And I, you know, I didn't really like super realize that when I was getting into mountain biking like that, you know, I didn't necessarily like have that like identity crisis of like, oh, do I fit in? Because I like, I came from skiing where like I had already learned to sort of like deal with that. Like ski racing, ski racing is like maybe a little different than like the like big mountain free ride ski world. Cause ski racers are just like weirdos that run around in spandex suits and like everybody, <laughs> everybody looks the same. Cause we're all wearing these weird spandex suits. Uh, but like I had already like figured out like who I was and had this identity and was like fine being in this like male dominated sphere of athletics. Um, and then I came into mountain biking and I was like, Oh yeah, cool. Like just one of the boys. And like, I can afford these things or like, you know, my parents actually bought me like my first real like modern mountain bike. And I remember it, it was like, I think it was like $2,400 in 2012. And I was like, that is so much money. Like, oh my God, my mom like split it with me. And then like now, you know, a mountain bike is, it's not absurd for a mountain bike to cost $12,000. But I didn't have that like issue of like, oh, do I fit in? Do I look the part? You know, whatever. Cause like I was already an athlete. I like X, Y, and Z. And then I started to work for Juliana and I was like, oh, this is a huge fucking problem for like most female identifying mountain bikers is like they don't feel like they fit in. They feel like they're going to be made fun of. If you're not athletic or you're not an advanced rider, like there is no space for you here. Like you're just supposed to like buy a mountain bike one day and like immediately like be super good. Like I don't understand like how we think that, but I think it's just insane. And so when I started to work for Juliana, I was like, oh, like this is, it's like our mission is not to get more women onto our bikes specifically. It like the mission has always been like to just give women a space in a community to feel like they fit in so that more women want to ride bikes so that it becomes a less male dominated sphere. And then it's normal to see women of all like athletic abilities riding whatever kind of bike they want in whatever clothes they want, like, so that that is normalized. And yeah, I just like, I never realized that it was a thing until like later in my mountain bike career. And I was like, Oh, not everybody just has this like nice, smooth transition into the mountain bike world where it's like you fit in and you have friends and you know, yada, yada.
And that was like yeah. a big wake up to me where I was like, oh, this is why brands like Juliana and Liv exist. I get it now. Yeah. But I think like, like, I just want to say that the fact that you went on that personal journey of like realizing that that's crucial because yeah. there's a lot of women. Um, what's that, that effect called Renee? It's like the, you're referring to it, like with the whole enduro series thing. It's like the oh, one woman who's really good. Oh yeah. So it's called, uh, the, they called it the queen bee. There was a study that called it the queen bee. I was looking at competitive mountain bike culture specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a buttload of enduro and competitive mountain bike culture as it pertains to women um, research yeah. <laughs> in my brain and also in written format. So if anyone ever wants to pay me to give them this research, holler. Otherwise, uh, I will just spew it on the podcast. <laughs> anyway, the premise of this is that it's it's really disruptive to call attention to the issues if you are the queen bee and by queen bee they kind of mean like a token woman mm -hmm. because then you risk losing your position in that community and it and that makes it difficult to yeah. speak out on these topics because women don't want to be the torch bear the torch carrier right so if you are someone who does have a prominent space and is accepted well you actually can put a bit of a like yeah it can be really hard and you can be seen as weak if you speak out for other women not having these same experiences or that it actually like is not all as it seems right so there's a, a bit of a like threatening aspect to being that queen bee spot too like i mean pink bike has shown as well they did at one point like all of the um uh, was salaries, like how much mm -hmm. everyone was making. And they found that 20% of women didn't feel like there was sexism, but the glass ceiling in their data was so obvious. If you look at how many women were making less than $5,000 from their sponsors wow. compared to men, it was way more women. Yeah. And the top earning folks were all male. And there's just this like obvious glass ceiling of like, this is the highest paid woman and there's still a bunch of men that are above that. So yeah. I don't, yeah. I am just like making a hypothesis here, but that 20% would be potentially the more higher earning women that mm -hmm. have some degree of cognitive dissonance because of this queen bee type hypothesis where they're doing better than the rest of them. So right. they either don't realize or aren't willing to speak out on it because they are benefiting from this system of right. being the, the top women. Right. And, and you like, don't want to be like, absolutely like, like, you don't want to be the person that's like, look at all this stuff that like I'm getting and you know, like, yay, yay, yay. And this is all great. And then be like, but also we really need to do better for the rest of the women. Like, it's like some weird, like, you don't want to upset your sponsors by making them think that like, mm -hmm. they're not doing their part. Cause obviously like they're doing their part for you and and to like call it out and be like but we have to do better for everybody it kind of seems like you're being like maybe like ungrateful and unappreciative of like what you do get but like i know women like that race on the ews circuit that like we're negotiating contracts like and these women like it is their full-time job to be a professional mountain bike racer like 
and they are negotiating for con like a few years ago, there were some women that are like, just like absolutely incredible athletes so fast, faster than I could ever imagine being that were like trying to negotiate contracts for like $20,000. And I was like, $20,000 like that will not even pay like your like travel around Europe and like your lodging, you know, and like your male counterpart is probably getting paid $65,000. Like there are men on the circuit and like, I, and like no disrespect for the, to them. Like I, I think it's challenging to be a professional male athlete in these spheres because there are so many more of them. Right. So like there is that, that issue of like, well, it's hard to be the best because there are 20 times more men, but it's also like, it kind of takes away from the fact that like women are working just as hard and getting a quarter of what these mediocre men are getting. But yeah, I'm like, that's, that's nothing. There are men that are, that are like, you know, in the top 50, maybe that are getting paid three times as much as some of these like top five EWS women. Oh, and that is absolutely. frustrating as fuck. <laughs> and like, I was totally like, I want to be clear that like my interpretation of the statistics is a, a bit my own inter like it's my own hypothesis about it, but there is still clear information in the data. Mm -hmm. But I also have heard info from the inside of bike brands where they're looking at paying some of their top male athletes like six figures. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And they can't get more women on the team because the women are, yes, are declining the salaries that they're offering. But they're also like just like pitiful amounts of money compared to like, right. okay, you're willing to pay this guy six figures, but it's but you want to give me don't have that many women on your team. Dollars. Yeah, you don't have very many women on your team, and you're wondering why that is because yeah. they are going to get paid more from someone else, or they're going to try and get paid more for someone else right. because you're not or offering them. Go, or they're going to go ride for a brand that they just genuinely like and appreciate despite their salary you know oh, like for we, sure we just signed um this incredible cross-country racer um from scotland her name is isla short um and she's like gotten top fives at world cup cross-country races like she's she's like she's no joke she's like real deal like i will die this season when i see a Juliana on a world cup podium. Like I will pass out with happiness and she could have like gone and signed for a proper factory team, like full sponsorship, probably a nice salary and like all of this stuff. And she wanted to ride a Juliana. And like, we just came out with our like world cup cross country bike, the women's version of the blur um, is the wilder. And She's just like, I like the bikes. I like the brand. I like the message that you guys send and like how you are trying to, you know, make this space for women. And I want to ride your bikes. And I like, which is just like incredible. Like she probably could have gone <laughs> anywhere. Like she's amazing. And she was like, nope, I want to ride for your brand because these are the things that I care about. And they align with like your mission and values, which I, I was like, what? Are you kidding? Like, really? Which is just like the coolest thing to me. So I don't know. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think like, um, you know, that whole 
wanting to be one of the boys thing. It's because mm. the current metrics of success in the industry are performing like a dude for a dude or to like please a dude, right? Right. Because they are the power holders in the industry. So if you can meet those metrics, then you have a sense of belonging and you don't have to try to fit in. Like there's a very right. big difference between fitting in and belonging. So right. like, why would you challenge that belonging or threaten it? Um, which is really interesting. And like the whole concept of having a space that's inviting, like that's what we tried to create with Womb Tang. And it's mm -hmm. been unbelievably successful. And one thing that I don't understand from businesses is this fake like performative surface level. Oh, we're inclusive to women. We're inclusive to BIPOC. Here's like a black square for like Black Lives Matter. Right. Or, like here's a campaign with hashtag she skis. That's it. Right. And it's like they're not authentically investing. They're not putting their money where their fucking mouth is. They're not creating equal opportunity. And by doing that, like you're lowering representation, you're lowering incentive to actually have new participants involved in the sports, which means you're decreasing their purchase power. Mm -hmm. because they're not interested. They don't feel safe. Right. And when you create a safe space, they inherently feel more inclined to invest in the products to help right. them be successful and like they belong. So there's a direct correlation and the industry is stagnant. There's only a limited finite number of white boys. Okay? Right. So if you want to grow the business at a sustainable level, like sustainable, like correlated growth, you need to diversify, period. Yeah. And it has to be authentic. Yes. So how do you do that? And I just, it's really interesting, this little pool of like acceptance that has been created in masculine spaces, because right now it doesn't align with other like societal trends or projections for what's happening for like higher income. Women are like exceeding men in achieving degrees, having like mortgages, mm -hmm. buying cars, like yeah. moving into higher level positions. It's just like, you know, and seeing diversification for all other marginalized groups. One area I'd love to see more investment in is disabled folk, because mm -hmm. that is part of an intersectional analysis that is often left out. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, looking at how much money Paralympic athletes get versus Olympic athletes and the messaging around it. It's kind of like they made the Paralympics just out of like pity. It's like, this will make them feel good about themselves, but there right. isn't any investment in actually like supporting them at the same level as able-bodied athletes. Right. Which pisses me the fuck off. Yeah. And it should like, it's, it's insane. I, speaking of um, disabled athletes, I like <laughs> had this like very cool moment during a moment of not so coolness. Um, <laughs> that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Anyway, I was on a flight to Mexico last October. I was going down to Trans Sierra Norte and I was sitting on my plane in Flagstaff uh, while this woman was having like a full-blown anxiety attack. Uh, she was like freaked out. They had to like bring the plane back to the fucking jetway so that she could like get off and get her luggage. Anyway, we ended up, I missed my connection in Dallas to Oaxaca. Um, but and ended up not being able to get down to Mexico for this race. Um, but the cool thing that came out of it was I was sitting on the plane next to this woman um, and her partner, and um, she had a guide dog with her. And she was, like, very obviously blind. Um, and I started talking to her. And I was like, you know, what's your dog's name? And yada, yada. And we got to chatting while we're sitting on the tarmac. And she's telling me she's, like, a... Paralympian. She was in the military. She had an accident. She lost her vision. 
Um, and now she's just like this incredibly badass athlete. And she um, was telling me how she just became the first woman, blind woman, to ride her road bike solo across the United States. She rode from Oregon to Virginia Beach, blind on her own bike across the country. And she had a guide with her, like in front of her um, on a different bike with like a speaker on the back so that she could follow the noise. But I was like, what, what did you do? Like, it was the most incredible thing. And then she starts telling me how she wants to become the first blind woman to ride the continental divide on a mountain bike. And I was like, what? Like, I don't even want to ride the continental divide. And I am like able-bodied 2020 vision. And I do not want to do that. But like, that's fucking incredible. And so I'm like, well, do you have a, you have a bike sponsor? And she was like, oh no. And I was like, oh girl, I'm going to get you a bike. Like we're, and she like had just moved to Flagstaff from Florida and like all this stuff. And so anyway, we ended up getting her this mountain bike and she's like starting this like training so that she can ride her mountain bike from Canada to Mexico blind. <laughs> and I'm just like so fucking in awe of this woman. Her name is Sean Cheshire. And it was just the coolest conversation I had ever had. She was like, yeah, you know, I just like, I don't think that my disability should like cause me disability. Like I should be able to do all of these things. Like I am, I am capable and I can do it. And I was like, you are the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. And I like took it back to Juliana and I was like, this is something that like we have to, like we have to do, we have to invest in this because that is incredible. And like, you never see this talked about ever. And no, so it's, it's amazing, right? Like working for Alpine Canada, um, I have confronted my own internalized ableism a lot over the last mm -hmm. little bit because I have never actually watched the Paralympics. And if right. I think about my thought pattern as to why I didn't watch it, it is rooted in like, oh, like they can't, they're not like pushing as hard as able-bodied athletes. Like this doesn't actually matter. And that's so fucked up. Right. <laughs> and and like, it's wrong. It's so wrong. And watching these athletes shred the shit out of like speed racing, GS, yeah. everything. And like the, the, the perseverance and like, the training and also the risk. Like I have right. had multiple concussions. I just found out some really interesting stuff about my brain and being neurodivergent, which uh, does affect my capabilities and understanding like the, it's not like bravery, like it's, it's strength, it's pure mm -hmm. strength and it's aptitude. And it's, it's absolutely astonishing. But if they crash being a, somebody with a disability or not being able-bodied, recovering from that is so much harder. Mm -hmm. Right. And like to come back from it, like anybody knows the mental struggles of being um, injured and how hard it is, but to have like other factors on top of that, that complicate the way that you are able to function. And just like they, they work just as hard. They shred so fucking hard and like watching sit skiers in a speed course. Holy no, dude. God damn. And like sit skiers are pushing boundaries of like what everyone thought was possible but in order for them to be respected they have to like push it that hard when they deserve respect just for doing like existing yeah. 
and unpacking that internalized ableism and then also seeing how the industry and popular culture and investment has backed up those harmful like biases and beliefs towards disabled people is so fucked up and there's this this concept in like sociology called identity spread which is where somebody's disability uh, removes all of their aspects of their identity. And that's all that people see, which I think mm -hmm. is really interesting. So it's like, yeah. you see somebody that is disabled, it changes the way that you, you speak to them and the right. position that they hold in your mind, because all you're thinking about is that, and you don't consider the fact that there is a complex human being underneath that, right. that surface level. Right. And it's right. like, like Paralympics and Olympics, it should just be Olympics. There shouldn't right. be a division. There shouldn't be a separation. Right. It's, the same thing with like, you know, I feel like we've talked about so much rad shit, but we wanted to talk about the concept of having like a female bike brand versus a male bike brand. And I think mm -hmm. you kind of touched briefly on um, how like Juliana is different to like say Lip and that messaging. And mm -hmm. I think we should talk about that quickly because it fits this whole concept of like separation and segregation yeah. of people, right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the the like women's bike brand thing people like you either love it or you hate it right there's like you know, there's no middle ground and I what I think is the most annoying and frustrating is that like the people that love to um hate female bike brands are men like there's like no one that hates it more than men uh which I'm like okay like you can fuck off because this isn't for you I know that's the reason you hate it because it's not for you but like we didn't ask you for your opinion. It's not wanted here. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I don't think that either, like, I'm, I'm just going to use Juliana and Liv because they're the two like biggest uh, female bike brands. There are other bike companies that like, you know, make their own, like maybe internal line of women's bikes um, or like have a, you know, like a dedicated women's like marketing team. Um, but Juliana and Liv are kind of like the two biggest and they differ in the fact that um, Liv, their bikes are not identical to Giant. Um, they're, the geometry has changed, the um, C-tube angle, the, um, the shape of the top tube, standover height, et cetera, um, is, is different and like more tuned to uh, a women's body which I've always kind of thought is funny because women are I mean I'm like almost six feet tall like I would argue that I am built maybe more like a, a normal man than uh, a woman like I think normal height for a woman is probably five foot four five foot five in the states uh, so I'm like supremely larger than that um, so I've always thought it's funny to like tune something to a women's geometry because women come in all shapes and sizes um but so that's the difference between Liv and Juliana's and Juliana the only thing we change about our bikes is that we put a like a lighter tuned shock on our bikes um than the Santa Cruz comes with uh and I don't think that either brand is necessarily doing it um better than the other I think that both brands um missions are just to like increase uh, visibility of women in the mountain bike sphere and to like create a community where women feel safe and welcome and that they don't have to be this like incredible, like 
super elite advanced mountain biker that looks the part um, and shreds. And so I, I, there's like all these debates about like, well, what's better, uh, Juliana or Liv? And it's like, the one that's better is the one that you have, the one that the wheels turn in circles. And like, honestly, uh, I don't think, I mean, I love my bike. I think it's awesome. But like all bikes nowadays are pretty fucking awesome. So I don't, I, you know, I think it's just like user preference. Which bike do you like more? What color do you like more? Which bike can you afford? Um, you know, which bike fits you better, which bike fits you better. Like, I don't think that people love to get into the nitty gritty of like, well, do we need women's specific geometry and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I've never been in that camp. Um, but like, there are plenty of people that like do support that and, you know, whatever that's, that's your thing. But, um, yeah, there's always this argument of like, is having a women specific bike brand, this like reverse sexism like you're you're excluding males and I've always found that to be an incredibly frustrating thing to deal with um because like on the one hand you're like okay yeah we are kind of excluding uh 50 percent of the population that are men uh but we are also catering to this gender that is usually like largely left out of normal mountain bike marketing. So I feel like, I don't know. It's so, it's so frustrating. I just like, I get on my soapbox about like, nope, women deserve this community and women deserve these brands and women deserve this attention and this spotlight and this stage to stand on because no one else will give it to them. Um, and I think that that's just like the most important thing is like giving women the stage to stand on. It's the equality versus equity argument. Like any woman can ride any bike, right? No bike brand is out there saying uh, like giant Santa Cruz aren't standing there saying like, oh, you're a woman. You have to ride a Juliana. Of course not. They're like, sure, ride a giant, ride a Santa Cruz. We don't care. Um, but there's so that's like, that's your equality argument, right? You can ride any bike you want. They're available to you. They're available to everybody. But the equity is not there. The like giving the women the spotlight, the resources, the stage, the marketing, the exposure. Um, you don't get that in like normal mountain bike marketing. And that's, I think, what Juliana and Liv like are all about, right? Is like giving women the equity, giving them the spotlight giving them the attention that they deserve so that other women who are not linked into the mountain bike culture see these women and they're like, oh, look, there is a space for me here. Like there are normal women that are, you know, full-time nurses, teachers, stay-at-home moms, like the whole spectrum that are just here riding bikes. It is not just this thing of like elite athletes. And I think that, you know, that's, that's why women's bike brands matters. Yeah. Something that I wonder too with that is if you are looking at budgeting for, mm -hmm. for projects and whatnot, like if you have Santa Cruz and Juliana where, where Juliana is like a, a branch off of Santa Cruz and the bikes are more or less the same, they just have different seat, different grips maybe, and a bit of a lighter tuned fork, which 
is great because like I've had to take tokens out of my fork because I mm -hmm. am like at the bottom of what Fox considers weight wise for right. that fork. But you potentially end up with more money going towards women's projects because you have this whole branch of women on bikes that you are posting about that you're doing film projects for all of these athletes that you're supporting and actually having the money put aside to do that and whether or not that ends up being like a 50 50 kind of split or not where it should be and it should go towards that but at least you can look at brands like giant and brands like santa cruz and they at least have that bulk of yeah. funds that can go towards this population right right and then right. there's the argument of like you know well we shouldn't need to have women's bike brands i'm like fuck i totally agree it would be amazing yeah. if we didn't have to have a brand specifically devoted to creating a community for women to feel included like that would be awesome but we're not there and like not that like you know if you ride a santa cruz that they're gonna like treat you any differently because you're a woman but like you know i i and I think that there's been a lot of improvement. Like you see, you know, Specialized does actually a phenomenal job of like marketing to women. Like they've really like stepped it up over the last couple of years. And like other bike brands do a really good job of like marketing to women and they don't have their own specific women's branch. Um, but it's still just like so far from, so far from equal. Um, and, you know, I wish that I could say that our marketing budget budgets got allocated 50-50 for Santa Cruz and Juliana. They certainly don't. And it comes just all down to numbers. We are much, much, much smaller uh, than Santa Cruz in the, like, grand scheme of things. And so if we got 50% of the budget, I would lose my fucking mind with what we could do. But, you know, we do get, a, we do get like, a hefty amount of money that is allocated just for us and like for for you know accomplishing our mission of getting more women onto bikes and i think that that's wonderful and i know that like it's the same thing with like live and giant and i think that's great and um yeah if we could not have women's brands someday like if if everything was all equal and happy and That'd be awesome, but I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I think that um, if two things, the first one is back to the investment aspect. It's like, I would love to see a data analysis of growth within certain consumer segments. So mm -hmm. like is investing that much in men again and again and again, actually productive for growth? How much? Are you growing year over year if you're investing right. that much? Like, what is the correlation? Um, and then to also compare that to research on increasing demographics and trends. Uh, right. That's how I think business decisions should be made, not off of consumers that you're seeing just on like a very surface level, right? right? It's like, what can you do for growth? So that bothers me with top business decisions because mm -hmm. then that leads to assumptions year over year with right. absolutely zero innovation. The second thing is that, um, oh shit, I forgot the second thing. <laughs> Damage. Um, 
God damn. Oh, women's spaces. All of these men that get upset about women's spaces, right? Rather than getting upset that they exist, why don't you ask yourself why they have to exist to begin with? Right. Well, if rather than if people were capable of self-inquiry, that would just be there would be so many less problems in the world. But like I said, we're not there yet. No, it's it's so interesting to me. It's like getting angry that somebody's speaking up, that the space is necessary, that there has to be equal like investment in R and D departments. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like the shrink it and pink it, or like girls want fuzzy they want sparkly they want yeah. all these aesthetics they don't want performance who the fuck decided that where yeah. is that research coming from are they not listening to people like yeah the, the whole concept of like why why i wish people asked why more and maybe that's because i'm a big fucking nerd and i love seeing the interconnectedness of things and patterns but next time you get mad about something or insulted ask why you feel like that and why this person would be speaking up to begin with right Right. It's just honestly, damn, why is it so hard? Don't know. <sighs> yeah. If people, I mean, yeah. If people would just ask the question, if people were a little more, you know, self reflective and, you know, I'm angry. Why am I angry? What's making me angry? Like, why do I feel excluded? Like, we would have a lot less problems in the world. Right. You know what's Putin. funny? Is Putin probably he, wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if he just asked himself why he was feeling so insecure. I literally, <laughs> yeah, you know, like <laughs> we would have so many less problems if people would just think, think for like a moment. <laughs> I know. I literally saw a meme that was like, what was it? It was, oh, fuck. It was something about Putin going to therapy. It was like, men will literally invade another country and start a war rather than just going to therapy. And I guess Mm -hmm. this like, why question of like, why you behave a certain way, why you have these belief structures. um, You do learn about that in therapy. And you work in marketing as well, like understanding how somebody's identity is constructed and exposure to popular culture brands, like purchasing brands is basically a form of identity expression and marketing overlaps into appealing to those identity aspects and younger generations purchase things to express their identity specifically Um, for like individuality and like learning how to speak to all of those aspects. So again, somebody taught you to have these uh expectations and like biases and perspectives in the world you were not born with them and being part of a privileged group where there's that echo chamber like the bro zone where they're all just Mm -hmm. you know feeding each other's toxic treats it's like they're they're building up the foundation and supporting each other's beliefs in those aspects and if just one bro in the bro zone could step in and question and call somebody out for it even at like at a business level phenomenal at a community level great too but to be disruptive and an ally in that space, calling out and asking why and challenging people's beliefs, it has phenomenal value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah. oh, yeah. percent. And I think that's like what the mountain bike world has been reckoning with the last, you know, couple of years since, you know, May labor Memorial day weekend of 2020. I think this is like what the mountain bike world has been dealing with is because, you know, we had this like, Black Lives Matter movement happened, all of a sudden the bike industry was like, oh shit, like we really need to get in here. We need to get in here. And like, um, I don't think a lot of brands really like gave a lot of thought to how they were going to send that message and they got a lot of backlash. And I think that that kind of um, 
has led to a lot of growth. I think that there are a lot of brands um, also in the, in the ski world that have like had to, you know, reckon with the fact that uh, they had no fucking idea what they were doing. They had no idea what they were doing when it came to uh, marketing and selling to their uh, BIPOC consumers. And I think that there's been a lot of growth. Like it's actually like there was a lot of like very cringy moments and there still are going to be a lot of cringy moments. And, you know, that's, that's how you grow um, and learn. But uh, I think for the most part, you know, it's like brands just posted their like, yay, black, black lives matter. We care. And all of these people were like, okay, like, fuck you. No, you don't. Like, what are you actually doing? Like just posting this like one single post while you don't actually like support any initiatives to get any, you know, any of these people onto your bikes in like an accessible way, you know, sure. You can say like, oh yeah, you know, any black person can buy our bikes. It's like, okay, cool. But like, are you marketing to them? Like, and, and I just think that they just had to have this moment of reckoning of like, oh shit, we actually aren't doing this right. Like, yeah. And you know, yeah, hundred percent. One, one piece of language that I would love to see change is like, like companies often talk about marketing and selling to mm -hmm. underrepresented groups, but it should be investing in underrepresented yes. groups. Like 100%. you can, and there's a lot of conversation about this in the BIPOC outdoor community and activist community, because, you know, like that surface level representation, like hiring an athlete who is BIPOC to do a photo shoot, you're increasing representation, but what are you actually doing? It's like, that is surface level and performative mm -hmm. on a certain aspect, right? It's the same yep. thing with like the whole like women's focus campaigns from companies. And usually they're very, very, very uh, heavily gendered. So like yeah. very stereotypical, uh, like Lush. What was that? That was the live bike that you brought up? The Or Lust? The Lust. <laughs> yeah. So it's like when they first came out with live, it was like, oh. Yeah. Burn. So it's like, again, like sexuality attached to femininity and how those have been like, you know, uh, those have been connected and used to determine how to communicate with women, right? In the industry, like aesthetics, looks, mm -hmm. all those surface level things, rather than focusing on the individual at part. Right. And it's like having that representation is important. That's a huge aspect of it. But marketing and selling with the intent to generate profit, not to actually invest and create change and equal mm -hmm. participation is a huge part of the problem. And that's right. why the black square and everything like on during the Black Lives Matter protests was performative and they got a lot of backlash. Right. Because it's like, no, no, we're OK. Like we we're helping. It's like right. you're not actually. Right. You're right. just like stamping it on to help your white guilt feel better about right. this aspect because you're not actually doing anything which is right. why I would love to see and something we're talking about doing is um, like we we can't speak to uh, like the experience of BIPOC folk or engage with brands on that aspect because we are white cis heteronormative women. Same mm -hmm. thing for like a lot of the LGBT community, um, Q plus community. But I would love to see a breakdown of investment. Yeah. Like budgets from companies. Mm -hmm. What are you actually yeah. doing? Put your money yeah. where your fucking mouth is. 
Yeah. Hurry up. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done and ran. Yeah. No, I see today. That is the, that is it though. Is like, you know, and I feel like we like we just have to like think think beyond also like mountain biking, right? Like mountain bike brands need to think beyond mountain biking, right? You know, like are you like it's great invest in your local uh you know Nike league um or I don't know what it's called in Canada, like the youth, uh, high school, middle school, um, like cycling organizations, um, invest in NICA. That's great. But invest in a NICA league in an underserved, underprivileged community where the, you know, most of the kids are not maybe white, um, or go to a, like a community that is impoverished and is not a bunch of, you know, well-to-do kids with well-to-do parents and give them bikes, teach them how to ride bikes, invest in, um, you know, like inner cities, places where you don't typically see mountain bikes, you know, like Chicago, you know, invest there, invest. Um, there's been a huge movement uh, and a bunch of brands actually investing in the Diné, like Navajo Nica program here in Arizona and New Mexico, um, which is phenomenal. It's incredible. Like there have certainly been some good things coming from all of this, but I just think like we, we think very small. We think in our, in our own little box of like, well, let's just give some people some free mountain bikes. It's like, well, that's great. That's a really good start. But like, how do you change the whole culture you know how do you get these kids that don't grow up around bikes that have never experienced mountain biking how do you get them to be interested and to get them into the outdoor space because just like throwing them a bike isn't really going to do much for them like show them how cool it is show them what it can do show how show them how that can like change their lives you know and yeah we think very surface level the um i just want to touch on that's such an important thing to speak about i want to touch on one more thing and then i think we do have to wrap it up this has been such a dope conversation yeah. um but we, we always it's been a great one so we were like going on forever but um the the other thing is like the whole like white savior complex right mm -hmm. um and also being able to make decisions that authentically invest in underrepresented groups at like a board or governance level mm -hmm. so the white savior complex or like, you know, the like heteronormative complex, um, you know, a lot of companies are like, well, let's like do a fundraiser, raise money and then just like, you know, use it to buy this group gear and do X, Y, Z. And it's like really what you should be doing is investing in organizations that are run by people that are representative of that group 100%. and allowing them yes not just showing up and be like oh you guys don't have anything well we have all the stuff right we have yeah. all the money we are the white saviors we are obviously right. better than you so we have these things so we want to like like give them let us you. It's give like, them to no. you it's <laughs> like pity yeah it's like a show it of is. pity, which is not, not it's like not good <laughs> it's like the paralympics argument right it's right. like oh we're gonna give you like this entire games and section of a sport that's just for you because you guys need it to feel better about yourselves right. and this is us being generous and it's like no it's like uplift right. those people like actually invest in them develop 
like a governance board that can make active decisions. Like right. one conversation we've had with a lot of brands is that when they've asked individuals of the BIPOC community how they can do better, like they're asking for free labor, essentially. It's like right. educate us on what we're doing wrong. And it's like, well, no, you need to compensate them for that. Because realistically, if you make the changes that they're recommending, you're going to generate a profit. Right. Right. hundred percent. And it's like yeah. within marketing, corporate social responsibility, if you're doing all of these, like you're like donating money, but then like you're blasting that you're donating money to everybody. Right you're creating positive associations, but not so much within the BIPOC community within like white folks minds, because it's like, this is a great business. They're yeah. doing stuff for these underrepresented groups. And again, right. generating a profit off of an issue. Right. So it's like, don't do it because it'll boost your brand. Do it authentically right. and right. actionably. Yeah, that was like uh, Brooklyn Bell. I don't know if you guys know Brooklyn. Yes, we love like, her. She's amazing. <laughs> um, and she like when this when the whole Black Lives Matter movement started, I remember she was like posting all sorts of like very informative, you know, just like her talking to her camera uh, or like her having conversations with other, you know, um, like BIPOC folks about these things. And I just remember her being like, stop, like stop coming to me and asking me how you can be better. If you want my advice on how you can be better, you can pay me just like you would pay any consultant that you would hire to help you with your marketing and your advertisement. And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, good. Like, yes, that is because it, it's true. We like, we like lean on these, on these folks because we don't know. And like, I mean, that's a very important part is like acknowledge that you do not know you are not the expert. Uh, but also like realize that like their time is not free. And like you exactly, exactly what you said, Tori, like you are going to generate a profit from making these changes. Like you are going to reach an entire other like community of people. And like, you should be paying these people to give you these ideas. Like, it's not just like a free Instagram IGTV conversation anymore. Like, pay these people and and hire them. Don't even just like pay them as a consultant once. Hire them or like hire their hire their brand, hire their their company that like does this professionally. Like, yes, that's I, yeah, that's like the way we seeing have to go seeing diversity all, all the way up into like the governance boards, R&D departments. And there's a lot of arguments mm. from businesses that they have a hard time finding diverse groups to work at those higher levels. Mm -hmm. When they're saying it's a hard to find it, again, why is it hard? Why is this right. not a safe space? What narrative have you created that somebody is not qualified enough to sit in that position because of X, Y, Z? Right. Like, what is the culture? Does this person feel safe stepping into that space? Like right. a really simple example is me wanting to work in hard goods, like boot fitting or selling skis and being told that I can't because I'm a woman. Right. And men will not buy from me. Like that blatantly happened to me at one job I had in a ski shop. Um, and it's like, you know, we, we hear a lot from women that they don't feel comfortable going into ski shops to purchase stuff. That's why there's such a high level of online purchasing from like expert right. level athletes and like women asking for help in like our chat groups on Facebook. It's right. like, why, why? Right. Why? And also I think like the, 
you know, like your example, like you need to have some knowledge of skiing and boot fitting, but like from a marketing level, I think that like, you know, people are like, oh, there's just not a ton of like BIPOC, you know, mountain bikers. And you're like, okay, but you don't need somebody that's necessarily an advanced mountain biker to be your head of marketing, right? Like they can know fucking, they can know jack shit about mountain biking as long as they know how to do marketing. You know, I think that's the other like interesting thing is like these people are experts in their field. They don't have to be expert skiers or mountain bikers. They like have to have expertise in marketing and advertisement, communication, like public relations. They don't have to know anything really about skiing or mountain biking. They don't have to like do it at this level that like we think you have to in order to like work for this brand and do this job. Like, yes. Because they can always learn. Yeah, 100%. It's kind of similar to like when I'm doing like a benchmarking analysis, when I'm developing a brand strategy or marketing strategy, one thing that one of my professors taught me is affinity benchmarking. And affinity benchmarking is basically figuring out the goal that you want to achieve. So with branding, it's like, how do you make someone feel a certain way when they associate with your brand? And rather than just looking at direct or like indirect competitors within the industry or sphere that you're operating, um, expand into all different types of industries, right? It's like, how is this business achieving this goal? And then see if you can create like a benchmarking analysis and like a format to how mm-hmm. you can apply it and innovate it into your business and right. industry, right? And it's like, it's the same thing with skill sets. Like, I think we had Matt Manser on, he's the head boot, like R&D uh, designer for Atomic. Mm-hmm. And he actually has a philosophy degree which is interesting. So worked as a boot fitter with a philosophy degree, which means that he's entering that space with different knowledge that's innovational, right? right? Right. So it's like, rather than looking for that copy and paste individual that you think has all of the qualifications, look for what you're trying to innovate and change and create a job posting for that aspect. Right. That's how I would attract, like deal with it. Man, people should, we're talking about so much good business shit right now. Like they shouldn't be doing this for free. (laughs) (laughs) oh jesus don't take any marketing advice from me i'm a nurse but you know (laughs) i know what i'd i know what i'd like to be sold i'm like yeah but that matters (laughs) that matters though Um, yeah as we (laughs) as we wind down here i want to know before we go what bike are you riding because you're shifting from ews to now like bigger trans Mm -hmm. mountain range type um events so that probably does affect a little bit what bike you're riding but before we before we say goodbye what bike do you ride because we were talking about like shrink it and pick it and i honestly was looking at the juliana bikes this morning and the rubion i'm like "Mm, that that paint job of the mauve yeah that colorway i love it i personally that would probably be the bike i would ride anyway but I personally I have to say Juliana has the best colorways of any bike brand. I'm not biased. It's just the truth. Just kidding. Um, yeah, yeah, I, like I ride a Ruby on um, as my race bike. Um, even uh, for like, it doesn't matter if I'm racing like an EWS or a like Trans BC. Um, I ride a Ruby on. Um, before we came out with like the new version of the Ruby on, that's the mixed wheel. Um, I rode a Maverick, uh, which is like a long travel 29er. Um, 
which I also really love that bike, but the Rubion just has, um, a little more travel and like a little more aggressive geometry for racing. Um, but my all time favorite bike that I ride probably 90% of the time is the Joplin, uh, which is like a mid travel 29er. Um, I ride it all the time. It's like the perfect bike to do just about anything. Um, except for maybe like race an early downhill course. Um, and then I have a, a wilder, which is like our mega XC bike. And that's what I ride when I'm trying to pretend like I'm fit and athletic. I'm like I'll ride my super light bike. It'll obviously make me faster. It doesn't, but you know, yeah. Joplin and Joplin and Rubion are my two favorite bikes. Nice. And where can people find you? And anything else you would like to plug on your way out here? <laughs> people can find me on uh, on the internets where you can find everybody else. Um, Instagram, it's at Alex J. Pavon. Um, that's kind of it. I don't have a lot of other social platforms. I think I have a personal Facebook and that's it. I don't TikTok. I don't understand TikTok. Um, and then you can follow me either. Uh, Juliana at, at Juliana Bicycles on Instagram um, Juliana bicycles on Facebook, Juliana bicycles on YouTube. Um, we put out, I mean, I'm biased, but I think we put out some fun content. Um, we have tons and tons on our YouTube, like, uh, like how to's training videos. We did like a whole tech series with, um, our, one of our mechanic friends from SRAM, Lindsay Watson, um, on like how to set up your suspension and do all sorts of like techie things to your bike. Um, we did an entire like series on how to train for like a long cross country event with our two, um, cross country riders, Rose and Evelyn. Um, so there's tons and tons of fun content on our YouTube. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. That's where I'm hanging out. Instagram. Sick. <laughs> I actually just had an idea, like heading into mountain bike season, it would be so rad to have you back on um, and maybe do like a discussion panel where we go over like how to find the perfect bike and learning yeah. those bike basics. Like with you, Alex Showerman, like I think that would be yeah. so sick. That would be yeah. super fun. Alex is yeah. awesome. She's so rad. Yeah. I love her. But yeah. um, I've never actually like met her in person. We're just Instagram friends. And I'm like, you're the coolest. <laughs> We've also never met her in person, but we've had the pleasure of interviewing her and becoming friends with her. And like, yeah, I hope one day we get to shred. She's so freaking dope. Yeah, yeah this summer awesome. she's coming to Whistler. I'm excited. Her and I are oh, gonna yeah. do a bike park laps on our yeah. what we call it the Big Fork Energy with the D. Big Fork <laughs> Energy, hell yes! Oh, yeah. that's awesome. That reminds me, I um that neuropharmacologist that I mentioned before, I went mountain biking with her and my boyfriend. And I like, I it was the first time I was able to like follow a chick. And it's just like being able to follow them made such a big difference. And I progressed so much in one day. And my boyfriend was yeah. like, where the fuck did that come from? I was like, well, you're just gone. But I yeah, have when you just like, leave so, me. <laughs> yeah. And like, I got down this line and she was like, huge bush. Like, cause you know how like, like huge dick is a thing. It's yeah. Like, yeah. That guy's packing. It's like, nah, she's got a huge bush. That was freaking gnarly. <laughs> so I think we need to see that. That is awesome. That is awesome. Anywho. <laughs> Anyways, polish off the episode on that note. Um, Thank you so much again, Alex. That was so freaking rad. Uh, we're looking forward to chat with you again. And maybe, oh, my mom lives in Arizona. 
come visit. It's such a lovely place. It's about to be hot as fuck down in Phoenix, but you well, know. I think I'm coming next month, so I should hit oh. you up because I'm coming to go you mountain should. biking. You should. It'll Freaking still be really race. nice. Yes. Yeah. That's my mom. My mom's actually a really. Uh, she started racing enduro. So. Oh hell yeah. Yeah. Cool mom. Be certified sick. cool mom. Cool mom. Yeah. <laughs> my mom awesome. is like hella gnarly on the suffer squad like did ironmans and our bar but that's that's a level of suffer i can't tell me about it we don't need to get into that right now but my whole childhood was that pretty much um anyways thank you so much and everybody that tuned in this week we will see you next monday and yeah have a good one